This is Sabrina Marie, host of the Building Abundant Success Series. Our primetime mastermind looks at networking. My guest is Pulitzer Prize-nominated author Clifton Tolbert. He is the CEO of the Fremont Company. He works with clients nationally and internationally, as well as Fortune 500 companies. You know him from that Pulitzer Prize-nominated book, Once Upon a Time When We Were Colored. I just got finished reading an interesting book called The Invitation, and we talk about not only how his life was shaped by community and mentorship, we talk about his companies, he's got a coffee company, as well as many other great things we're going to talk about in this interview. You can reach him at cliftontolbert.com. This awesome interview begins right now. Well, I think as an adult, one of the things that we do when the rain is coming gently on the roof and uh, you got a nice cup of coffee, it's so easy to travel back in time. And I often do that uh, back to the green, back to Glen Allen, Mississippi, where I was born. Grew up there up until I was 16 and a half years old. Uh, it was, as Charles Dickens said, it was the best of times and the worst of times. It was the worst of times because we lived in what I call the transition period. Legal segregation was still the law of the land, but it was the best of times because I was surrounded by a community that loved me, a community that cared for me, and more importantly, a community that dreamed for me. And I didn't know how important that was until I ran across young men and women literally around the world where there was no one dreaming for them. And oftentimes, we assume that we have dreamed our own dream. But I think for most people who have had any degree of success, they will find that the dream that propelled them was also the dream that others had for them. And as a result of that, they they would bring into that person's life the level of unselfishness that would be needed in order to move them ahead. And for that, I have always found myself to be very thankful. Uh, I could not have left Glen Allen, Mississippi, had not other people paid the incredible emotional price of helping me to dream big. When I watched the movie um, about uh, your life and just, it was totally different. You're talking about being the bridge of what was common, segregation. And, you know, we today are living... Of course, because of not only your generation, but the generations before and before, that uh, could not go out and speak freely, could not, um, or they'd have to do it under their breath. <laughs> um, what do you see today, because you did dedicate the book, The uh, Invitation to Your Son and His Generation, um, what are you seeing as a boomer and our race relations and, and, and some of the uh, lessons that were not only instilled in you, because they had to be, but um, I know you have a total different perspective that you can bring to not only our Gen Z audience, but millennials. What do you see? You know, the, you know you're absolutely right. Very good question, because time really allocates circumstances and challenges and opportunities. And the time frame in which one lives is so important to preface conversations with the time frame because the time frame in which I lived, uh, the world was legally segregated and uh, 
but black people had an incredible amount of hope. Uh, I, I, I often found that to be absolutely remarkable, that in spite of all the challenging situations that they may have faced uh, against them because of who we were, there was hope there. I mean, uh, they still believed that their children, would ha that that generation of their children would have a much better life in America than they had had. And, uh, and I really was a, was a beneficiary of that. Uh, you know, going to school to get an education was, was not like an option in my day. That was the thing you had to do. It was like, it was like education was a ticket to the rest of your life. And if you fail to buy that ticket or to study for that ticket or to get that ticket, you may miss out on the purpose for which you were born. And there were so many people who seemed to have believed in that for the next generation. I, I think, you know, for my parents and my grandparents who were still alive at the time, and one of my great-grandparents was still alive, uh, they had seen their dreams vanished, but they had also seen glittering, uh, I they had glimpses of moments where dreams were coming true in other places, and they wanted those dreams to come true for their children. And uh, when I dedicated the invitation to my son, I just wanted his generation to know that uh, we expected more of them. We expected them to really get the high notes, to actually be successful uh, in, in, in more ways than I could have even imagined. But at the same time, I realized that the walls of segregation and racism are not so easily torn down. And someone has to be willing to do the work that is necessary to create community a community of inclusivity that was not necessarily the community that I saw as a young boy growing up in the Delta. Awesome. There in your life story, as well as this great book called The Invitation, um, you are dealing with a time in, in the bridge now that had community. You mentioned your grandparents and great-grandparents and different people around you. That's something we don't see as people really don't stay in, in one most, especially if you're talking about um, black people and people in general. Uh, communities, strong communities and role models. That's what I saw, and that's what I read. And they very much influenced your life. You had, you know, one of your relatives and your uncle, I believe, who was really an entrepreneur, not really knowing what an entrepreneur was in today's meaning of entrepreneur. Uh, you had a member of your family also who was um, an entertainer, but had to come back to uh, the South, uh, as there were probably no... Um, you know, commercial places for them to stay. And uh, you, you kind of look and see, wow, um, if it had been, you know, 50 years before or 50 years later, how different that would be. Uh, in terms of community and building up you as not only a young black boy but to a black man, how, is, how important is that and what is that structure of community and family? You know, I, I really get my answer when I think of the time that I spent in Australia with the Aboriginals, and I uh, had a chance to dive into their clans, their communities, and how important those communities were. 
And I think any time that you are a set-aside people by someone else, by virtue of race, color, ethnicity, and those types of things, community becomes almost a direct result of that because a closeness is created by your similarities uh, that you embrace and that may be questioned by others. But you find that community becomes this train that can take you into the rest of the world. And that's what I found all over the world. Wherever community exists, uh, be it in, in the place that may have even nurtured the great Nelson Mandela, wherever community exists, it tends to build within the person a sense of resiliency, but also a great sense of unselfishness as well, because you realize that nothing can be accomplished by one person alone, and we need others involved in the process. So I think that idea of community is timeless and universal, and uh, it was just, it, to me, it is just as important today in the 21st, 20, 21st century, 2020, as it was when I was growing up in the late 50s and 60s in the Mississippi Delta. You don't want to leave home without community. That's so vital. Um, when you talk about uh, the, the Delta, the Mississippi, South Carolina, Alabama, uh, very much part of what would become um, our modern-day um, <laughs> laws for civil rights. Really, people were looking at things that were going on in the South. And I wanted to know something. You kind of touched on it uh, when I when I read and, and also saw within the movie. When people actually started caring that, about the right to vote, the right to actually improve their situations, uh, what was going on? I know you were a boy, but what was going on in your mind and what did you hear um, from your, your people? Uh, about uh, you know, it, that's a very good question. You know, I mm -hmm. think I think that uh, there were different aspects of the community. Uh, there were some that were more proactive than others, uh, but I think everyone had a sense of change. Uh, it was it was just like a a, a common storm, uh, and I'm using storm as a metaphor of the clouds of change were coming. You could see them. Uh, but you weren't quite sure if it was a, a tornado or just a heavy rain. But something was coming. And there were those people like Mr. Joe Maxey. He's a man who just stood out. He was always looking for the best, looking for a better tomorrow, voting, doing the things that one needed to do in order to be involved politically. But there were others who lived on plantations who didn't have what I call the, the verbal freedom to express themselves that way. Uh, but yet, in, in their own way, they supported uh, those people who were, to some degree, representing them. One of the things I remember, uh, one of the German had was going to go to Baltimore to an NAACP meeting and invited the whole town to help raise money to send him there. And my great aunt, who was not a political activist, but, uh, but this night, we left home. And, and the streets were filled with black people, very quiet. Nobody said anything, but everybody walked in the same direction. Uh, and we ended up at the St. Mark's Baptist Church, where the place was packed with black people who had come to give their little bit of money to Mr. Maxey so that he could represent their feelings, represent their dreams, and represent their thoughts in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. 
I'll never forget that wow. night uh, because that was probably the first start of, 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 of what would be a foreshadow, if you will, of what was to come. Mississippi, um, and I'm, I'm going to mention that place because um, you have a lot of civil rights activity there. Um, um, Shorter, Cheney, and Goodman, um, a female mayor. I mean, you, you have a lot of things going on that um, uh, were parts of your life. And I, I know you know about them more so than I or anyone who was born during that time. Uh, what do you say about what's going on now in Mississippi compared to what you are you surprised that things have somewhat changed in Mississippi? You know, Mississippi is your home and uh I think everyone probably looks at their home through different lenses. Uh, mm-hmm. uh maybe not the same lens as I would look at another place. But I would say that Mississippi has changed. There's no doubt about it. It is not the place that I grew up in. Uh, the relationships that exist between blacks and whites have certainly improved to a great extent. And there are still clear evidence of yesterday as well. But yesterday is not as pervasive as it was when I was a child. Uh, so I would say Mississippi gives me hope for America. Uh, even though there are things I would like to see change more rapidly, like tomorrow would be nice. Uh, oh, yeah. And at the same time, uh, I, I realize that that change is, 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 is a question mark in the lives of a person to walk away from a world that they have embraced, be it right or wrong. Uh, they have embraced it, and it's, all the, it's the only world that they know. They're comfortable there. But I have found to discover our better selves and to be the citizens that we should be, sometimes it requires us to become uncomfortable as we build a new way of looking at things and build a new set of outcomes that we'd like for ourselves and the generation that will follow us. In some of your writings, you do talk about uh, these great lessons, not only of um, the laws of the past, the ways of the past, but it's a bridge to what we're still seeing going on today. Um when you talk about separate but equal, when you talk about justice, and when you talk about uh, not only your, your one of your uncles who was an entrepreneur, but the Tulsa Black Wall Street, these are things that are actually in the news now, big time. You're seeing not only people talk about uh, the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race riots, you are getting a lot of people, a lot of big scholars talking about... Uh, Black power by black. Um, you're seeing that more than ever. You're seeing people take to the streets for justice. I wanted to ask you with um, uh, a young Clifton, and, and, and if Clifton was that young kid coming up to n- up now, um, but he was still that boy of the past, what are your thoughts of the things that are going on now? I mean, you know, black codes are still going on now. They're just different. We, I guess, um, <laughs> uh, they're not talked about like that. But it's still going on. Don't you? Don't you believe? You know, I would. You know, there are some things that uh, some things have changed and some things remain. But uh, I think the journey 
the human journey is one toward movement toward change. Uh, because time is, is not held captive by any one group of people. And change, when change begins to happen, uh, it, get, it begins to take up a momentum of its own, especially when that change is rightly deserved. Uh, and, and I think we're in, in a time period now, as you indicated so wonderfully, that uh, we're beginning to question the journey. Have we done everything that we could have done uh, to make life better for others? Have we embraced our common humanity to the extent that we should? How much longer will we try to live in a separate and unequal world? Uh, I think there are questions being asked today by this generation of young blacks and young whites and young Hispanics as well. Uh, you know, how do we form a more perfect union? And I, and I think that these questions are being asked and uh, we're seeing some of it being lived out on the streets and in other places as well. But again, you know, it's just like our country. As I often tell people, our country was not a result of two people meeting in the Atlantic and having a glass of wine and two ships, one from England and one from the colonies. It was a major protest that brought America into existence. You see um, a Kaepernick. Um, you, you see athletes now using their voice. But this is not the first time. Over 50 years ago, Olympic people used their voice, and behind the scenes, many black entrepreneurs who paid money and middle class and poor for um, Asa Philip Randolph's March on Washington, which didn't happen until 21 years later. <laughs> um, there was just the march um, about a month ago in Washington, D.C., where we see now um, justice for not only Brianna, George Floyd, and other things going on right now. And you're right. Uh, have we have, have we as a race or as a people uh, come as far as we need to? The answer is no. I'm I'm wondering though, a separate but equal on the economic front of blacks and people, but you know, say the black community. Um, entrepreneurship. Don't you believe that some of the segregated um, and integrated, too integrated laws actually hurt some of our, our own businesses, our own building of our own uh, economic wealth? Because they say by the year 2030, black wealth will, will, will really won't be, I mean, compared to the way it was maybe 60, 50, 40 years ago. What do you say to that? Well, you know, there are a lot of layers to look at. Uh, between uh, around the 1919, 1920, 1921, uh, economic pride was pretty rampant among black communities, from Chicago to Ferris Street in Jackson, Mississippi, to Durham, North Carolina, and, of course, to uh, Black Wall Street, Greenwood, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, but... There was also the, the time frame when so many of those things were destroyed by hateful means. Uh, many of them burned to the ground as if they never existed, as it happened in Tulsa. And sometime when that spirit of entrepreneurship has been crippled to the extent that it was, uh, it, it doesn't completely wipe out entrepreneurial thinking, but it, it, it sort of undermines the foundation upon which people build. Uh, a good foundation of economic success is critical, 
and, and, and if that critical element is, is taken out of the equation, uh, you may have people building, but I don't think you're building in the way that they would have built and in the, the reasoning that propels them into that economic arena at the time is just absolutely astounding to me, astounding. And, and I've admired them wholeheartedly for what they've done, but at the same time, I, I see how they were crippled uh, when, they're built, when their enterprises were destroyed and, and, and no one was held accountable for the destructions. And many of them did not get the financial return from insurance and things like that. Uh, that they should have gotten when, when things were destroyed. So it was just like, I, I'm climbing up the ladder, but the ladder isn't there anymore. Uh, I, I don't, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's someone smarter than me would have to figure out exactly what was destroyed between 1915 and 1921. But I know at one point it was called Red Summer because the blood ran so thick throughout many places in America in the destruction of black businesses. Um, I don't know. I, I, but I do know that the wherewithal to be persistent, to have tenacity, and to have a dream, uh, that those things are internally born within, within us, but the cultivation process is what really truly matters. And I think a lot of that is beginning to come around again, that people are beginning to cultivate, and those who have become successful are realizing it is not enough just to be successful for yourself, but you want to be a lightning rod for others to find their success. And uh, I don't know if you can rebuild Black Wall Street, but you can certainly uh, bring into your life the mindset that caused Black Wall Street to become what it became. Uh, that mindset is something that lives within us, and, and, and it certainly can be can be nurtured into reality again. I believe that wholeheartedly. You're an entrepreneur, and I wanted to ask this question. It seems like if there is a, a Howard Theater, Apollo Theater, or any institution, um, we don't own it. And you just mentioned that many of our institutions um, were destroyed. Um, it, and many people try to tell the story, um, but usually, unlike yourself, they're not the actual people telling the story of what happened and what we owned. And um, I'm wondering how you feel about preservation, because when someone else gets, um, say, a former um, track of black land, or a LaDroit Park in Washington, D.C., or something, um, we always say, wow, that used to be black-owned. But usually that history is totally erased unless you've got a few scholars out there that keep knocking on the door pretty hard. You did a great job with your own story and bringing it to life. But there are other stories out there and other businesses that were very, <laughs> very prominent. And you may hear about them from a 90-year-old or an 80-year-old or maybe a picture from a few of their kids that they may have passed on. What do you think about us telling the stories? You know, I agree with you a million percent. Uh, stories are incredibly necessary because I believe they are the lifeblood of a people. Uh, the stories, those conversations of success, those conversations of failure and triumph, 
those conversations of wherewithal and nothing, those conversations of building and rebuilding again. They need to be told because it, uh, it, it gives us a picture of who we are. I was telling a friend this morning that uh, when I was in college at University of Maryland uh, for years or two uh, while I was there before transferring out, I was doing research on George Regina, an Egyptologist, who had discovered this incredible and remarkable black kingdom uh, in, 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 the African, uh, in the African Sahara area. But he was such a, a, he was a white Egyptologist, and he was such a person of his time that this is what he said. He said, no black person could have invented or brought to life anything this marvelous. They must have invaded the tombs of the Egyptians and brought them into their tombs as if they had done it. And, you know, for me, for a long time, the people bought that line. But just this month, September 20th, the Smithsonian has, put, for the first time, 104 years later, the Smithsonian is actually has published the magnificent Kingdom of Kush that had been overlooked, watered down, and, and was believed by the person with the historical knowledge to say that, yes, it did exist, but it wasn't created by people. And that's why our stories need to be told, because we have an incredible wealth of knowledge that should not be just kept under wraps, but it should be spread wide and abroad for all to know, and more specifically for our children to understand what is required of them and what their culture DNA really is. Slavery is not the total sum of who we are. Amen. Your website is? CliftonCulver.com Thanks so much for being with us. Bless you and all your work, and thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you, Mel, and thanks for the wonderful work you do and the great questions that you ask. Thank you. Have a blessed day. I will. Thank you, Mel.